Welcome to the Wonder Women Tech Show, where we highlight, celebrate, and amplify women and Bill Pock voices. We humanize our role models and curate a culture of vulnerability and belonging. This is a show designed to innovate, empower, and ignite. I'm your host, Lisa Mae Brunson. Innovators, it's Lisa Mae Brunson with the Wonder Women Tech Show. Today's guest is a formidable woman who is a scientist and an advocate for public health who serves as the conscience of big tobacco. Dr. Moira Gilchrist is Vice President of Strategic and Scientific Communications at Philip Morris International, leading a team that translates the robust science behind the company's smoke-free alternatives into information policymakers and the public can easily understand. She regularly engages with public health authorities, media, and decision makers around the world, demonstrating the benefits of scientifically substantiated smoke-free products for those adults who would otherwise continue smoking and calling for a risk proportionate regulation that affords these people accurate information about and access to these better alternatives. In short, she plays a vital role in PMI's transition away from cigarettes and its journey toward a better smoke-free future. Prior to her current role, Moira held several positions within PMI, including leading the Reduced Risk Products Corporate Affairs Team, serving as Director of Scientific Engagement within the R&D function, and working in both product development and commercialization. Before joining PMI in 2006, Moira worked in the pharmaceutical sector for more than a decade. She was a principal consultant within PwC's and IBM's pharmaceutical industry, consulting groups and held positions within both industry and nonprofit organizations as a developer of drug formulations. Moira holds a degree in pharmacy and PhD in pharmaceutical sciences, both from the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow, Scotland. Welcome to the show, Dr. Gilchrist. Thank you very much, Lisa. My goodness, that was a that was a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. But you know what I love about all of our guests is that they have the most impressive resumes and bios. I just am always blown away by the impact that each of you have. Oh, that's really nice of you. <laughs> so it's quite interesting to me to learn there are innovators in science, such as yourself, who are paving the way for scientific innovations that directly impact and benefit public health. But before we dive into that, I'd love to learn more about your roots and background growing up in Scotland. So um, I think I lived a fairly unremarkable life in, in Scotland, uh, spent a lot of time outdoors in the Scottish rain um, all year long, 
Um, I enjoyed school. Uh, I enjoyed playing around with my friends. Um, yeah, and just I, I don't think there was anything particularly special about it. Just a, a usual kind of um, upbringing. I loved making things. I loved exploring. Um, yeah, and, and kind of science and techie things, I guess, from a fairly early age as well. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, were you an only child? No, I have a sister, an elder sister. Um, we got up to quite a bit of mischief together. Um, <laughs> I, As sisters uh, do. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and being the younger one, I got to do some of the more exciting things a bit earlier than she did because I rode along her uh, her coattails, uh, which I enjoyed very, very much. Um, and yeah, it was a super nice upbringing. We lived out pretty much in the countryside, but not too far out. Um, so I was able to enjoy the countryside, but at the same time have a, a little bit of city life from time to time as I got a bit older and that became more interesting. Um, so yeah, really, I have uh, just very fond memories of growing up. I love that. I mean, your your father is a scientist while your mother um, is an artist and singer. So how, how were their interests and influences um, impacting you as a child? And did you always want to be a scientist growing up? Well, my dad is um, a geologist, and um, he spent every single trip we went anywhere explaining about the geology of the local area. And I have to say, my sister and I would roll our eyes um the uh the detailed explanations but what i i learned from from him was this idea of scientific curiosity and looking at the world around you and trying to make sense of it and trying to figure out how it all worked and how it all fitted together and i think um that was a really important influence for me and if i think about about my mum my mother it was much more about enjoying the beauty of life. Um, so she has an artist eye. So she was always encourage, encouraging us to look at, you know, beautiful plants or flowers or skies or buildings um, in a much more artistic way. Whereas my dad was much more about, you know, how does this work? How on earth was it constructed? Um, you know, how, how did it evolve? Um, so I had, you know, really interesting two different sides um, in the family that gave me, I think, a good breadth of, uh, of experience growing up. Yeah, I really appreciate that because, you know, you were brought up in the debate of is it a science or is it art? And I love that question. And so can you share some examples of how that would play out? Like what would be considered science and what would be considered art? Well, I think if I, if I take, you know, going to a new city, for example, on, on vacation and exploring around, my, my dad would be looking at the individual uh, uh, almost stones that were making up a, a, a large old building, for example, and explaining the marble and the formations in the in the marble and how they were created and what process geological processes happened. Whereas my mum would step back and look at the architecture of the building and encourage us to think about, um, you know, why it was built like that and and and, and what elements from what period was, was the architect. Um, you know, uh, taking inspiration from. So that was 
quite exciting and quite interesting. Um, I remember that distinctly going into, you know, new big cities and, and, and looking at, you know, both perspectives. I think that's such an important lens to have because it really lends itself to like really having critical thinking uh, when you're, you know, taking a look at architecture, but also just real life, everyday experiences, right? Right. And I think for me, that was the first lesson in having diversity of thought. So if I just Mm. went around with my dad, I would only see the grain in the marble and understand that. Or if I only went around with my mum, I would only have seen the architecture of the building or, or the beauty of the building. But I think what I learned from that type of experience was you can look at a problem or you can look at something, an issue from multiple different perspectives and, and come to a different view about it, depending on, on, on which lens you look through. And I think that's been an important lesson for me all through the, the rest of my life is trying to understand people and problems and situations from as many different perspectives as you can in order to be able to figure out what's the best solution for the situation you're in. You know, that's just so beautiful. I think we all should definitely take that lens because it it really does. I didn't even think about that, but it does provide a great playground for cultivating that diversity of thought. Yes, and and a little bit of critical thinking as well, not assuming that because you have a particular mindset or experience that that's the only way of looking at something. And I think that's something I'm really keen on doing is making sure that there's, you know, all sorts of different perspectives taken into account. Um, Something I work with, you know, in, in, in team environment all the time. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'd love to learn more about your educational journey, you know, because it sounds like you had a great start uh, there at home. But what did your educational journey look like and what were some of the challenges you faced along the way as you were, you know, studying and developing your career interests? So I was I was very interested in in science and technology, and I was I was always like making things, you know, electrical circuits and things like that. Um, but then I started to develop a love for for chemistry and and understanding human biology as well, pretty pretty early on. And then when I was I don't know maybe. 12, 13, 14, I suddenly got this idea into my head that I stubbornly would not let go of, and that's that I wanted to become a pharmacist. And neither of my parents can understand where it came from, um, what sparked this idea, but I decided very, very early in, in comparison to my peers that that was what I wanted to study and that was the career I, I wanted to, to have. So I I spent time seeking out pharmacists and going and asking if I could go and and do like a little work experience for a day when I was I was really quite young. Um, And I can't explain it. I just don't know where it came from. But I do know that I was interested in science, but I was also interested in how it could be applied to humans. So how could it be used to help um, people have better lives or or better outcomes? and, and that really engaged me. And so I set myself on a path to work as hard as I could to get the grades, 
to be able to go to university and, uh, and, and, and study pharmacy. That wasn't particularly easy because I also like to have fun. So I had to inject <laughs> a little bit of discipline into, into life when it came to crunch time to make sure that I, um, I got the grades, which I, which I did, thankfully. And uh, then I went off uh, and, and, and started to study pharmacy. So, I mean, I love that you, you talk about, I mean, I'm going to consider it balance. Okay. Fun and studies equal balance. <laughs> Correct. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Did you yeah. have mentors? You, I, I did. Um, I, I think I had, I mean, maybe perhaps a bit later on. I, I do, I do remember in particular one teacher, in fact, two teachers at school, who were particularly good at handling me, if you like. So encouraging a little bit this fun and mischievous side that I, I had and still have, I think, but then also ensuring that I, um, you know, I could, I could get the grades. And one was my chemistry teacher and the other was my English teacher, um, both who saw a little um, spark in me. And I think uh, instead of trying to suppress the fun side, really encouraged it, but at the same time, making sure that I, I knuckled down when it was really important um, and, 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 you know, got on with things. I, I really remember them in particular. My English teacher also um, encouraged me to be a little bit like pushing my envelope um, so I remember one discussion where um, I said, there's no way in a creative writing lesson you can ever get full marks for an essay because it's so subjective. And he said, um, Pro prove yourself wrong. And so I set about for the next semester doing the best I possibly could to create a creative writing story that would blow his socks off. And I managed it. So that, that set this sort of internal competitiveness that I, I have on a, on a path, which I think has been really good for me in my career and really helped to motivate me by, you know, trying to prove myself that I can do something even better than I think I can. Oh, wow. That's, that's so inspiring to hear. Well, you eventually did graduate with a degree in pharmacy and a PhD in pharmaceutical sciences. So what was your first big career break after college? Um, the first job, um, so as a pharmacist, you have to do something called a pre-registration year before you're let loose on the general public. You have to do a year where, where you're kind of supervised and, and you have um, sort of exams and, and mentorship and so on. So I did, I did that first. I did half in a hospital pharmacy and half in industry. So working in a pharmaceutical company. And that's where I discovered really where my passion was. So I had started out thinking I was going to deal with patients all day long. But then I discovered industrial pharmacy and the fact that you could be part of creating new medicines. And I think that was um, that was something that really sparked an interest in me. So after so then I decided to go and do the Ph.D. because I thought that would help me in, in my career later on. Um, also to test myself, you know, could I, could I, you know, really work independently and come up with uh, scientific ideas and, and uh, solutions um, during that time. Uh, then after that, I went to work in the non-profit sector. So I worked for the UK's largest cancer charity, um, where mm. we took kind of, if you like, orphan drugs that pharmaceutical companies didn't want to take any further because there wouldn't be sufficient return on investment or um, 
potential medicines that had been discovered in universities that they wanted to take into clinical trials. So we worked on formulating these drugs to make them suitable for, for phase one and phase two clinical trials. And that was super, super interesting. I got to work on an early treatment for breast cancer, for bladder cancer, and all sorts of different things, um, creating medicines so that they could go first into humans to see if they would um, have a potential to be, you know, to be products in the future. Well, that, I never thought about that aspect of, you know, behind the scenes developing medicines and 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 drugs that would help people and, and, and think about the fact that there's something called orphan uh, drugs, which, which makes sense to me, actually, because, you know, when you're developing something, it may or may not work or may or may not, as you mentioned, uh, provide a return on investment. But uh, like, have you ever seen a case in which, you know, you might go back to an earlier uh, innovation and, and, and use it for a future solution? Yeah, I mean, there have been lots of cases of this where, you know, medicines that we we know since, you know, decades and decades have, have been later on discovered to have new uses. For example, aspirin it started out really as a painkiller and um, something that can be used to reduce fevers. And now we know through additional studies that have been done that it has um, a applicability, for example, immediately after a heart attack occurs, you can prevent uh, somebody having further damage to their um, cardiovascular system by quickly administering um, aspirin. So these things happen all the time. So there's new medicines being developed and new fancy technologies like the, the mRNA vaccines, for example. But then there's also new applications to old medicines. So I think, mm. you know, there's, there's tremendous amount of innovation that can come through chance learnings, but then also very in-depth and, and deliberate learnings, um, such as the, the vaccines that we all know now for, for COVID. That's really so inspiring. And thank you for giving us a, a greater lens into that. Um, so once you were let loose on the public, <laughs> where, where did your career take you before you joined Philip Morris International? So I did a lot of what's called locuming in, in pharmacy. So um, on the weekend, I would do like on a Saturday, I would work in, um, in pharmacies in some of the most deprived areas in, in Glasgow, for example, I really enjoyed that because you got to meet real people with real life problems um, and, and some really difficult health problems. Um, so that that really sparked an interest in helping people again. Um, mm. But after my, uh, my stint at cancer research, I, I sort of realized during that time that working for a nonprofit wasn't probably going to give me enough money to be able to afford a mortgage and so on. So I decided to go into the the, industry, the pharmaceutical industry um, kind of proper. And I, I started to work in a, a company that specialized in inhalation drug development. So working on formulations for inhalers um, and so on in collaboration. It's a fairly small company, but in collaboration with some of the large major pharma companies. And um, so that was my first real experience in the industry. 
and again super interesting got to work on on things that I um you know I, I learned a tremendous amount about um, manufacturing drugs again for for clinical studies but this time through the inhalation route um, so that was that was super interesting. And um, by this time, I had uh, met and fallen in love with a gentleman who's now my husband. Um, <laughs> and he um, was given an opportunity to to come here to Switzerland, where I'm now based. And this was back in 1999, so a long, long time ago. And um, we had just started out on our relationship. And I thought, OK, he asked me if I would come with him. And I thought, well, in for a penny and for a pound, why not? Let's go on an adventure and see what happens. And uh, <laughs> 21 years later, <laughs> two kids later, um, I've, I've never gone and, and, and lived back in Scotland. I came for a year originally. I said to him, I'll try it for a year. But uh, Switzerland is a very uh, engaging and inspiring com- uh, country. So we've ended up staying here very, very happily. Aww. Love enters the equation. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the problem then was I had to find myself a job because I didn't want to to not work. I was very, very driven and and motivated by working and I didn't want to to basically just sit back and and do nothing. So I set about searching for for a job that would would, suit me. And of course, um, Switzerland is well known for its pharmaceutical industry, so there were some some interesting choices. Um, but the one that really struck me as the most interesting was uh, I was approached by a headhunter for a job in in pharmaceutical industry consulting, um, with as you mentioned in the introduction with Pricewaterhouse Coopers in their management consultancy arm. I didn't really understand what it would entail. I had I hadn't really thought about it before, but I went for the interviews. And I just thought, my goodness, what an opportunity to learn because you you, you get to work with so many different um, companies working on so many different topics that can only be enriching. Um, So that's what I did. And I joined them. And that was one of the the most exciting uh, parts of of my career because it was so varied and, and, and different. Each project relatively short, but learning so much along the way. You know, you just gave a wonderful tidbit right now because, you know, you said, what a wonderful opportunity to learn. How enriching will this be? And what if we all like took that into our, you know, leap of faith moments where we're looking at, you know, do I take this road? What an opportunity to learn. How enriching will this be? I'm going to take that with me, Dr. Well, I have to say, my first reaction when the headhunter told me about it was, oh, no, I can't do that. I don't have the right experience. And this very wonderful woman very patiently explained to me why I was exactly the right person for the job. And (laughs) took me me on a sort of realisation journey, if you like. To, to let go of my um, worries and anxiety and think about things like I just said about this opportunity to to really learn and I have to ha- thank her. I didn't invent that saying um, I have to <laughs> thank thank her for really challenging me and I think that's been um, you know it, it was a it was a major thing for me to think about things differently again. Well, it just goes to show how important you know women empowering other women is and 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 staying the course. 
So you used to advocate against giant cigarette smoke companies, and now you work at Philip Morris International, which is historically associated as one of the largest cigarette-owned companies. So how are you pioneering the space to become the conscience of big tobacco? So it, it all comes back to one day back in, I think it was late 2004, um, where I was working as a consultant, as I mentioned, in the pharma industry practice. And, and we got a call from the partner who was just responsible for the relationship with Philip Morris International. And we were told that um, the head of R&D at PMI wanted to speak to people with pharma industry expertise because they had a project that they were considering. And we kind of scratched our heads and said, my goodness, what on earth could this be? Um, <laughs> we went to the meeting and, and then discovered that the company had this very secret project and idea about creating products that um, could ultimately be a much better choice for adults who smoke than continuing to smoke cigarettes. Um, so they had done some basic science and, and, and done lots and lots of research, um, understood that the problem associated with cigarette smoking is not tobacco and is not nicotine. The primary cause of smoking-related diseases is all the other chemicals that are delivered in cigarette smoke. Um, so they had figured out that if you could deliver some taste and flavor and some nicotine for satisfaction, but without all the chemicals that are produced when you burn tobacco, that there could be an opportunity to create products that, that really could be shown scientifically to be much, much better than, than continued smoking. So this was all explained to us. And they also explained that the skills and capabilities that they had in-house at the time wouldn't be sufficient to create the level of evidence that would be required to, to really um, withstand the scrutiny of regulators like, for example, the US Food and Drug Administration. So they asked us to come on a project to really transform all of R&D to, to give advice on what would be the scientific assessment strategy, what skills and capabilities and, and people would, would be needed to run this. Um, what business processes and quality standards would be required. Um, so we did a huge project for about 18 months. And then at the end of that, they said, hmm, how would you like to come on board and actually see this through and make this happen? And again, I scratched my head and I'm like, oh, my goodness, going and actually working for a tobacco company, I don't know. Um, but here's the thing. I'm a scientist, but I was also smoking. So I mm. thought, if this company, with the passion that I had seen and the can-do attitude, can get this right, not only is this a great thing for the company to be able to move themselves out of combustible cigarettes, but it's also potentially a solution for me. Because although I knew exactly the dangers of smoking, I enjoyed it very, very much. And so um, I thought, well, this could be a solution for me and it could be a solution for the billion other people on the planet who are just like me as well. So I decided to join. <laughs> and I have to say, I've never looked back. Um, it's been the most exciting thing, just challenging all the perceptions that people have about um, tobacco companies 
um, showing that we can create and, and deliver the most um, robust science um, of, of the field and pass the, the tests of, of regulators like the US FDA, for example, and at the same time, get the product into the hands of the people who most need it, which is adults who otherwise would continue to smoke. So you used yourself basically as a case study, I'm, I'm imagining. Um, I, yes, I, 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 I really did see it very, very personally because um, I had been told so many times and nagged so many times to, to stop smoking, but I didn't. And so I, I, saw, I saw the problem of the billion other people like me from a very personal perspective. Mm-hmm. So we, we know and we, we have to always be very clear that the best thing somebody can do is to quit altogether. There's no doubt about that. But we also have to accept the pragmatic reality, which is the vast majority of people, adults um, who are smoking today, will be smoking next year as well. So those people deserve, people like me, they deserve to have access to these innovative products that, um, that are a better choice than continuing to smoke. So that's what we set about doing. And I'm incredibly proud of the, the results that we have um, generated, both from a scientific perspective, um, really some amazing results, all the way from, from um, laboratory studies on the chemistry through to clinical studies in adult smokers and, and, and thousands of adult smokers, all with very, very promising and encouraging results. But then also now the success of the product, seeing adult smokers like me switching in their millions um, is, is really rewarding. I imagine that it must be. And, and I mean, it, it sounds incredibly exciting to be able to, you know, be on that cutting edge of, of technology and innovation for changing the way that uh, smokers in, engage in, with these products. So you eventually became the vice president of strategic and scientific communications for Philip Morris International. What does that role look like and and what do you feel your impact is? So I I really kind of um, describe myself a bit like a translator. Um, So science can be very complex. Sometimes it can be quite dull um, and it can be quite, quite inaccessible if, if you're not a scientist or, or you know, an expert in a particular field. So what I discovered um, you know, quite some years ago was that I really enjoyed doing that translation. I enjoyed bringing those really complex, nerdy things and, and making them into sort of common human language and helping people to understand what the takeaways were, how the experiments were run, but without using expert language. And we discovered that, you know, there was a tremendous amount of misunderstanding and misinformation floating around. Um, And that, you know, having this translation layer so that people could really understand what the evidence meant would be really important in ensuring, for example, that um, policymakers and regulators understood what the science um, said and didn't say, and that ultimately the adult smokers would understand what um, what the science shows. And you know, you know, we've done survey after survey that shows that you know almost half of people 
think that things like electronic cigarettes or heated tobacco products are as dangerous, if not more dangerous than combustible cigarettes. And I see it as my mission to make sure that that's corrected because that's false. That's not what the science shows. So my role is really about simplification without dumbing down and, and making sure that there's education of people who really need this, um, this information, such as policymakers, regulators, etc. Wow, that's that's a big job. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of people out there that need to need to hear this information. But I, I love my job. I feel so passionate about it. Um, you know, misinformation is a big topic these days. And when I see the misinformation going around about COVID and and vaccination and so on, I'm, I have steam coming out of my ears um, because it's uh, it's really counterproductive for for public health. Well, I think science, you know, a, a lot of people don't really understand the science behind things. And I think when you do make it more accessible to understanding uh, without dumbing down, because, you know, people don't want to feel like they don't understand, but they don't. <laughs> so how yeah. do you finesse it in such a way? And I love that you use translating um, because you do have to kind of uh, be the go between between the science and the public's understanding of you know what it is that you guys are innovating. So again, that's a that's an important job. It's a big job, and I'm 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 proud that you are paving that way with 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 who you are and the perspective that you have. So I what do you feel <laughs> is on the horizon as we enter into more smoke-free environments? And what are some of the smokeless innovations you are most excited about? So I think the, the, um, we're at, I, I think, a turning point in the, in the history of smoking. I think, you know, there's now um, many different new technologies um, and innovations that offer much better choice for, for adults who smoke. And I think now the, the key question is, how do we get those products into the hands of the people who need them most, and that's adults who would otherwise continue to smoke, whilst at the same time keeping them out of, out of the hands of the people who shouldn't be using them? Because these products deliver nicotine um, and they're, they're not risk-free. So it's really important that we keep them out of the hands, for example, of youth. And so I think the, the, the question today is how do we enact policies that ensure that we make the most out of these innovations whilst at the same time protecting against unintended consequences? I'm a complete optimist. I think it's perfectly possible to do this. Um, but there's a there's a debate happening right now about how how should we do it and how should policymakers do it, and I think for me the two things that should guide us are what does the science say and how can we make sure that our policies and information we're giving to people is based on science, and the second thing is um, keeping the adult smokers in the conversation, keeping them at centre of mind at the moment. We, um, we talk almost exclusively about making sure that these products don't get into the, the hands of people who shouldn't be using them. And adults who smoke have been somehow forgotten. And I think that's a, mm. that's a difficult thing for me to swallow. And I want to make sure that we can balance, as you said earlier, 
life is about balance and we need to make sure that there's a correct balance between making sure we have the intended consequence maximized and the unintended consequences minimized um, and, and that's I think what's on the horizon right now is having really a proper conversation about how we can do that as a society. Well, it's taking the holistic approach and, and having, uh, you know, all variables in the equation, which is something we don't always do. Actually, we're not doing that at all. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, in this type of circumstance, when things when a debate becomes somehow divisive, it sets people apart just at the time when people should be talking together and coming to a solution that, um, you know, is it, always a compromise. And I think we have to all be willing to talk and to compromise and come to something which, which makes sense for public health as a whole. That couldn't be more true, especially now. So you have a strong appreciation for beauty and excellence and believe in strength-based leadership. So how do these values play out in your own role as a leader? And how do you encourage women to leverage their strengths rather than sap at their energies to fix perceived weaknesses? So I've, I've always been a believer that as a leader, your role is really about getting the best out of people. It's, it's not about making them like you. It's not about correcting a, a, a weakness or, or, you know, perceived inability. It's about you know, meeting the person where they are and figuring out what's their strength. What, and everybody has amazing strengths. And figuring out as a leader... What, how, how do I get that person to be able to leverage that strength to the extent that they possibly can within my span of control? And I spend a lot of time, um, you know, you, you go through the interview process with people and you, 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 see, you see there's a spark, um, so you decide to hire them. But you have to be constantly in, in the, you know, the period that, that they're in your team, you have to be constantly checking, what are my assumptions when I hired this person? The correct, do they have other skills that I haven't seen? Or is there, you know, is there a better fit of a job for them within my span of control that can get the most out of them? And that's what I'm constantly thinking about is, is not trying to encourage people to, you know, mask something that is, you know, you know, not seen as acceptable, but really having their strengths come out and really obliterate anything that could be seen as a as a weakness. And I think that's something that we can all be doing is is really helping people not to focus on what they think is is bad about you know their skill set or their attitude or whatever but think about what is the positive that they can really make the make the most of yeah it's really about developing people into leaders i love that yeah that's correct yeah and and being flexible with people as well when people change over time um, you know, I'm not the same person as a, a, as when I started my career, and I think I've developed slightly subtly different strengths. And being, you know, willing to to understand that, you know, you personally have 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 changed, and and also people in your team change over time, and and just flexing and responding to that, and giving them opportunities where they can really shine. 
Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you so much for your leadership. So we're going to take a break for today's Pioneering Women segment. Today's Pioneering Woman is Lena Waithe. Lena Waithe is an African-American screenwriter, producer, and actress. She starred in the Netflix comedy drama series, Master of None. She became the first Black woman to win the Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Writing for a Comedy Series in 2017 for writing the show's Thanksgiving episode, which was loosely based on her personal experience of coming out to her mother. Waith strives to give more Black writers a seat at the table as co-chair of the Committee of Black Writers. She also co-founded a networking group called Black Women Who Brunch. Waith is a significant activist in the LGBTQ community. Her activism was awarded when she was given the GLAAD Media Award. She was honored for bringing more LGBTQ representation in television and film and is committed to amplifying Black stories. Thank you for your pioneering contributions, Lena Waith. Hello, innovators. We are back with Dr. Moira Gilchrist talking about the importance of scientific innovation and its impact on humanity and engaging in the appreciation for beauty and excellence in leadership. Dr. Gilchrist, you once shared you are obsessed with your family, which include your husband and two adult kids. Can you please share more with us about this obsession and your family? Um, there's nothing I love more than being with my family, even when <laughs> when things are sometimes a bit rocky, as they can be, when uh, yeah you have uh, lots of stresses and strains. But for me, it's my it's my yeah it's my safety space. I just love being with them. My kids are fascinating. I've really enjoyed watching them grow and uh, learn and become adults. That's just a fascinating thing. Um, so I, I spend a lot of time or did spend a lot of time on the road going and talking and meeting with people. And there's just nothing better than coming home and being in the safety and security of your of your family and, yeah, just hanging out and chilling out with them. <laughs> I imagine, you know, they, they all have their own personalities, too. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. Our, our the, the, there's, we're sort of divided down the middle, which is quite funny. Um, so on some aspects, my son and I are very, very alike, and my my daughter and my husband are alike. And on other aspects, it, it it kind of swaps. So that that we have a lot of fun with. Like my son likes shopping, and so do I. My husband and my daughter can't stand it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will join you and your son then. <laughs> I love shopping, <laughs> especially if it's thrift store shopping. I don't know. I just love thrift stores and going into like antiques markets. Yeah. So you're a staunch advocate and support people's right to their own opinion and critical thinking, which I love, you know, as a scientist, because you are having to develop, you know, your own opinion and having a critical thought process. Um, so how does this play out in your life? 
So if I think about, for example, home life, um, teenagers can be very opinionated and, 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 you know, particularly now, I think there are so many different social causes, for example, that um, my kids um, feel, feel very passionate about. And I think what, what myself and my husband have done is, is to really encourage them not just to listen to people that they agree with and arguments they agree with, but to listen to the counter arguments, not to, to agree with it, but to understand it. Um, and, and that can be beneficial for a number of reasons. First of all, it helps you yourself create a better argument against something that you don't like. This um, is true. If you understand what their, their position is. Um, on the other hand, it, it can also help you to understand what the flaws in your position are. So have I thought through this, um, this issue really properly? And I find this tremendously useful in my own job. Um, we have a lot of detractors and people who really don't like my company and my industry. And I spend a lot of time trying to talk to them and listening to what they say, reading what they write. Because um, that, if you don't understand what position people have and why they have it, you have no hope in, in coming to some kind of common ground um, in the future. So I think it's really important not to surround yourself with things that you just agree with. You have to surround yourself with a whole host of different opinions in order to come to you know, a, a, a better view. I absolutely, absolutely, absolutely agree and love that. I mean, this is this is a value that I think we all need to cultivate now more than ever in, in being able to listen. And, and as you mentioned, not necessarily to agree, but listen to understand. And oftentimes it can be an opportunity to strengthen your own, you know, beliefs and, and ideas, but it also could be an opportunity to, to just learn differently and, and to approach, uh, you know, the perspective differently. And I, I just love that you, you teach that to your children, but also apply that in your, in your life and in your career. And I think also it's, it's an opportunity to discover if you think you should change your mind as well. Yeah, yeah. And I think changing your mind is always seen somehow as a weakness. And in fact, it's not. It shows that you've learned something new and, uh, you know, be, being able to take that on board and come to a new conclusion. And that's, in fact, how science works. Science isn't definitive it's about getting new evidence that helps you change your view of how the world works or how medicine works or, or whatever. So I think having a scientific mindset is really important in all aspects of life is be willing to have um, new evidence change your mind. Um, so that's what, what we certainly have tried to encourage our kids to do. I'm grateful for that reminder. So we've all had to reimagine the way we connect with others and the way we lead and the way we navigate corporate environments as you know the world has shifted. So how do you lead your teams in this new era of business? Um, I've, I, I'm a worrier. I worry about people all the time. And one <laughs> of the things that my worrying gene caused me to do at the very beginning of the pandemic was to have something simple as a daily check-in with my team. 
So this is something I couldn't do before because I was flying all around the world and sometimes my team wouldn't see me for, for weeks on end because of various different things that I had to be involved in. But the pandemic brought a daily 15-minute check-in at 5 p.m. in the evening every single day. Not mandatory. If people had had enough and didn't want to join, they didn't have to. But, oh, my goodness, has it been such an amazing thing. It's brought the team so much closer together. We've been inside each other's houses virtually. We've understood <laughs> all of our own individual problems and dogs and children and cats and builders and goodness knows what. And we've been able to solve little nagging business problems on the spot immediately every single day. And that's something I will not change. So even if we go back to something a bit more that looks like reality, I think the benefit for all of us of having this close, brief contact has um, has made us all more efficient. It's made us um, be able to get through this um, very difficult set of circumstances, I think, a bit, bit more easily. And it happened purely by chance because I just wanted to make sure that everybody was OK on a daily basis um, at the beginning of the pandemic. You and I are similar. <laughs> I'm a huge warrior. I'm the oldest of six, five growing up. And I do, I, I've never been able to turn that off. I think it's, it's, it's what has allowed me to do the work that I do. Um, but I, I also have grown even closer with my team because you do have that very intimate lens of, of one, you know, as you mentioned, zooming and seeing each other's houses and, um, but also, it's really created a space for vulnerability and and sharing, you know, because as a team, uh, I've unfortunately, there's been deaths, there's been sicknesses mm. with the with the mm. with COVID, there's been depression, there's been mental health, um, you know, experiences that I've had to navigate my team through. I mean, I've, I've been on calls where people are literally breaking down and sharing things that they wouldn't ordinarily have shared before. So it, it really has changed um, the way that we interact with each other and the way that we show up for each other. And I also can't imagine even when things shift into, as you mentioned, <laughs> what we knew before, I, I, I also don't think that that we can ever go back, at least within my organization, um, to to not understanding each other a bit better. And, and, and what I have seen, as you mentioned, is, is that we are solving these challenges in, in ways that we didn't before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's all hands and on it, deck. Exactly. That's exactly it. And there's no such thing as a bad idea. Everyone can throw their ideas out in this 15 minutes. And sometimes we come to something amazing. We're like, oh my goodness, why didn't we think of that before? And that, that's been really energizing. I think the other thing that it's really helped us all to understand is there's no point in covering things up. If you're mm, struggling yeah. because you've got a child at home that you have to homeschool, there's no point in trying to pretend that that's not happening because we're all in the same boat. We, you know, we all have, maybe it's not exactly that issue, but we all have things and you can see them every day that we're having to cope with. Yeah. So I think that's 
it's been somehow a little bit of weight coming off people's shoulders. That they, they don't have to pretend that life's all okay because everybody can see into your house every single day. <laughs> um, so there's no pretending anymore. And I, I, I do hope we we keep that sort of authenticity going um, mm-hmm. because I, I do think it's been it's been helpful for for certainly for me and I, I do know the feedback from my team has been really positive. I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, you know, as we navigate this global pandemic, I do feel the appreciation and respect for scientists and scientific innovations are more paramount than ever in our lifetime. So as a scientist, what do you feel is significant to understand as we educate the world on the importance and safety of vaccinations and other scientific solutions? Well, first of all, I think the thing that struck me is the weight of responsibility on scientists at this moment in in, in our global history. Yeah. Everybody is looking to them for, for answers. And I know as a scientist that you don't always have all the answers. So I think um, for me, the, 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 the scientist really needs to be open and honest about what we know and what we don't know. People don't like surprises later on. But if you've been open and honest about the level of confidence we have in evidence, for example, then I think that really helps people to digest, you know, things as they move really quickly. And, you know, we have new variants and we have, you know, changes in policy here, there and everywhere. People get confused. And when they get confused, they become demotivated to follow scientists' advice. Mm-hmm. So I think trying to prevent confusion by being open, honest, authentic, um, explaining what we know, why we know it, but also what we don't know is really, really key. And I think there's been some good examples of that, but there have also been some really poor examples of that that we can we can learn from. It sounds like we need a translator <laughs> like you <laughs> as the go-between, you know, because it is difficult. It is difficult to, you know, understand what's happening because we've all been blindsided, but but to understand how important, uh, you know, scientific uh, solutions are at this moment in time. And, and I think we are looking for a quick fix and it, there isn't one. Um, and the interim process looks like this. Um, but people yeah. don't trust the interim process. People don't trust uh, science right now. And they don't trust the political right. aspect of it as well. That That's right. And when you get politics and science mixed together, it becomes politics. <laughs> you know, this, the, the science will, will never win in, in that environment. And I think also as humans, we like kind of certainty. We like black or white answers. But actually, mm-hmm. this is a whole mess of grey because it's so new and, and nobody really knows what the right answer is for, you know, or at least it didn't know in the, the beginnings of the of the pandemic. I think that was quite difficult for for people to, to really get their heads around. And I think that that makes it even more important to be absolutely honest with people and not try and, you know, uh, you know pull the wool over their eyes because that's when you lose trust and I think trust is so important when you're asking the public to help you solve a problem because there isn't an immediate immediate solution. 
Yeah. It's it's so tricky. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just so tricky. <laughs> but we've learned such a lot. I mean, this virus, much as we all detest it, has taught us a tremendous amount about the human body. It's taught us a tremendous amount about social sciences, how people mm-hmm. will behave under these extreme circumstances. Um, it's, it's As a scientist, it's fascinating. It's annoying, but it's really fascinating. I imagine that it is. I have a little bit of a, a science head myself, and I, I, I do have this lens of of taking a step back and look and and looking at how we all are behaving and who's who's rising to the occasion and who isn't and what are the reasons behind it and I like what you said earlier about listening to the other arguments you know in my home we're divided politically um or in my family not my home I live by myself and my dog <laughs> we're not arguing <laughs> but <laughs> but my family and I are divided and we're divided on the vaccination issue as well and it really, it really does help me understand them when I do listen uh, instead of debating and fighting back, which is what I did do a couple of years ago. So there's something yeah. to be learned, I think, for all of us. Um, yeah. what, what is your hope for the future, Dr. Gilchrist, and how will you continue to make an impact? I, I never really <laughs> tried to project. Um, you know, what what can or, or, or will happen. What my hope is that we um that we we spend more time listening to each other. That's I I think it's a very underrated skill being a good listener. And I think it can go such a long way to help us innovate, to help us solve problems to help us help people um, and, and so on. So my hope is we'll, we'll all stop shouting at each other when there's a problem and we'll start a bit listening to each other. I think that that's my hope. Oh, I really appreciate that. And I'm, I, I love that Philip Morris International has you at the helm there because we need leaders like you. That's so at Wonder really Women Tech... We feel vulnerability is a strong leadership quality to have. So can you share something with us that you've never shared with anyone else before? Oh, my goodness. Um, A vulnerability. I am the most um, uh, introverted communicator you will ever meet. (laughs) I like my... I like my time at home not speaking to other people. And if you see what my job is, it's only speaking to other people. It takes such amount of my, it's such a large amount of my energy to put my, uh, my work mode on and, and get out there. And I love it when I do it, but boy, does it take me energy. I love to be just curled up on the sofa with a blanket, um, chatting with my family without having to be on show. But at the same time, when I have to be on show, I I love being a bit of an actress and, and being out there and having a crowd and, and so on. So there's a kind of strange, I have a split personality, if you like. <laughs> um, I, I, I do love meeting people, but it might goodness, it takes something out of me and I have to go and lie down in the dark room sometimes afterwards. 
Oh my gosh, are we like the same person? Because I'm the same <laughs> way. I am on stage. I have to greet our people, you know, at our conferences, at our events. And um, but I love and and I'm and I'm great at it. I love it. It's 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 fun, but you most days you will find me curled up with my dog under the covers, reading a book, watching Netflix, creating. Um, and I love my, I'm a hermit. So I do love like what people wouldn't understand is that I actually enjoy like being in my huddle in my house. So I get it. (laughs) Are you a cancer? We're spiritual sisters. No doubt. Yes, we are. We are. (laughs) So, you know, looking back on your incredible journey, would you take the easy road or the road less traveled and why? I would always take the road less traveled. Always, every single time. Um, I love doing things that have never been done before. That's, that's where the energy, the inspiration, the fun, the hard work and the reward comes from. I, 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 I just love doing the unexpected. It's, it's amazing. And I think I always say this to, to young men and, and women who are mentoring is, is going through the things that really scare the heck out of you because that's when you'll learn and that's when you'll, you'll really progress your career. Oh, and then I couldn't agree more because, you know, it is those road less traveled pathways that really shape us into who we, who we are and who we become. Thank you Absolutely. so much for being with us today, Dr. Gilchrist. It has been an absolute joy to, to learn more about you, to understand the building blocks of what make you uh, an amazing leader. And, and there's no doubt that you are an amazing source of consciousness for Big Tobacco. So thank you for standing in the gap for, for all of us and, and doing some great work. Well, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. The time has just flown by. Thank you so much for being here, innovators. Make sure you give us a like and share the podcast with your network. We'll see you next week when we take on the world one more time.